is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for Episode 70 is Jungian analyst and voice dialogue facilitator, Diane Braden in Solon, Ohio. She holds a master's degree in Romance Languages and Literatures from the University of Michigan and a diploma in Analytical Psychology from the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. Ms. Braden is an independent, licensed chemical dependency counselor with an extensive background in addictions treatment. She completed her analytic training at the C.G. Jung Analyst Training Program of Pittsburgh and has maintained a private practice in analytical psychology since 2000. She continued her studies in voice dialogue facilitation after completing her analytic training and worked extensively and directly with Drs. Hal and Sidra Stone, the originators of voice dialogue and the psychology of selves. She is an active member and senior training analyst with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, having served on their admissions, final exam, and training committees. She is also an affiliate member of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and a member of the local educational group, Jung Cleveland. Ms. Braden is a visiting faculty member of the C.G. Jung Analyst Training Program of Pittsburgh and has presented unpublished papers in Cleveland, New York, and Kansas to both Jungian and psychoanalytic groups. In 2011, she edited The Fireside Chats, published by Drs. Hal and Sidra Stone. It includes a series of conversations they offered to senior practitioners of voice dialogue on life and death, the challenges and rewards of aging, relationship and psycho-spiritual growth, illness and health, the gift of dreams, and the ever-present golden thread of meaning in the evolution of personal and global consciousness. Ms. Braden is a past monitor in the Voice Dialogue International Dream Room and continues an active private practice in Jungian analysis and voice dialogue facilitation in the Cleveland area. Her book, The Path of Relationship, The Life and Work of Drs. Hal and Sidra Stone, published in 2018, continues the journey begun in the Fireside Chats, and it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you'll find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, August 19th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Diane. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. In the introduction to your book, you say you are a Jungian analyst and what that means to you. You write, Jung had a gift for understanding the psyche in a way that made sense to me. Would you say a little bit about that? Sure. You know, we have lots of different kinds of training and lots of opportunities uh, these days. And when it, it just seemed to me that when I was introduced to Jung and, and his way of seeing life and human beings, that suddenly something clicked for me. Mm-hmm. It's like reading the very right description of what you're experiencing. And, and so I, and I've always been 
uh, a really active dreamer, I mean, even as a child. And so I've had a connection with the unconscious that I never knew what to do with. I just thought I was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And um, so everything fell into place. In your private practice, you say you work with people's inner lives, their dreams, fantasies, and creative projects that yield meaning to a personal process of psychological growth. So you trained to become a Jungian analyst, but concurrently, you were working with the Stones on their modality of voice dialogue. What is voice dialogue? Voice dialogue is a tool, actually, um, that you can use to help people discover the reality of uh, a life that goes on within us. It's it's a it's an active tool. It's an engaging tool to introduce people to what it is to be human, to be to have many different parts, and and bring all of those under one roof. So it it dovetails so nicely with, I mean, of course, uh, with Jungian theory because Hal Stone was a Jungian analyst and and uh, had all of that training as well, and so it's a it's a foundation. Uh, his Jungian training was a foundation for the work that eventually became voice dialogue. And voice dialogue is simply engaging in dialogue with the different parts of ourselves and making, a, making them conscious. So let's talk a little bit about Hal and Sidra Stone, who you knew. Hal just recently passed away in May. You worked with them for many, many years. So how did you first discover them and their work? I actually was introduced to it through a friend of mine who was a practitioner and worked and and staff for them in some of the intensives that they hosted out on the West Coast. And so I began to get interested in the work and curious. Mm -hmm. And so I began studying, I began reading, and then eventually I uh, made the trek out to out to California. And I say it that way because the uh, Albion, where they uh, live, is truly a pilgrimage. It's not just you know a quick trip from the airport. So, um, but it's it, it it ended up being a really really important part of my training in my life. And you were doing that while you were training to become a Jungian analyst? I was uh, nearing the end of my training when I actually started going uh, independently to work with them. Mm -hmm. And they were just an enormous support. You know, analytic training is a a very rigorous uh, experience. I mean, as it should be. Working at that depth with people is a huge responsibility, I think, and... And so training should should be uh, careful and exact and and deep and require of you what you're going to ask of other people. And so it was quite demanding. And I ended up uh, working with them as a support uh, through training. Well, let's talk a little bit about them. And you mentioned that Hal was a Jungian analyst. He trained with the Jung Institute of Los Angeles. Uh, He also spent some time in Zurich, 
where he worked with C.A. Meyer and Marie-Louise von Franz, two of Jung's closest colleagues. But Hal, as he is known to be called, Hal, uh, he actually resigned as a Jungian analyst. So would you tell us a little bit about his journey as as an analyst? Um, sure. I, you know, Hal, I mean, one of the wonderful things about his story is that, you know, he's, he remained one of the sort of originals, one of the people who was able to meet Jung face to face. And, but I mean, it was just a, it's such a great story uh, of him meeting Jung. Yeah, and, and that's in the book. I, sorry to jump in, but uh, yeah. that is a great story. And it is in the book, The Path of Relationship. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. And uh-huh. whatever you want to share, please. I say in the book, um, you know, I'm a sucker for training stories. And, you know, when 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 Jungian analysis came to this country, people were in analysis, you know, young. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how was a young man uh, still in his 30s uh, when he decided to train and get involved in, in uh, uh, analysis and analytic work? And he, you know, he signed up. Uh, he said he wrote Jung, you know, the most amazing letter to try to get a, an audience with him when he was in Zurich. And, you know, he landed one. And it's just an amazing, his whole trip to Zurich and that time was just a wonderful adventure. And, he, you know, he analyzed with, with Meyer and von Franz. And these are the, these are the big guns for those of us who are analysts now. I mean, these are the originals because... I, I mean, I didn't know anything about Jung, and he had died in 1961. I was still, you know, in school. So to hear, you know, stories like Hal's and, and you know, how von Franz was unhappy with him, He's, you know, when he missed his, he missed an appointment with her, he said she came to the door like a, a great dark cloud. You know, that's just, you know, I can't imagine being able to stand up straight if von Franz was mad. <laughs> right. So I, I was like... Or, you know, he, he goes into an audience with Jung and he's had a momentous dream about why he was really there and his father. And so he didn't really have anything to analyze uh, with Jung because the dream had told him everything he needed to know and Jung agreed. And so he said, there we sat, you know, knee to knee. And he said to Jung, I just, you know, I just wanted... An opportunity to see you, and Jung laughs, and he says, "You know, well then, take a good look." Mm-hmm. And you know, I I just can't imagine mm-hmm. being knee to knee with a psyche that of that size and depth. That just it's just so much fun to listen to. So he had, you know, as an analyst, he had so many great experiences, and and also with the people in California, the analysts in California, and some the opportunity of some of the early guys um, that he worked with it just it's it's an amazing story the experience he had and then it, you know and then honestly he completed whatever it was that drew him to Jung and he and to being a Jungian analyst and the and being part of the training and you know he just I mean he says himself he wished he could have done it with more grace and um peace of mind, I guess. But he also says, look, you know, you can do only as well as you can do. Mm -hmm. And so when he was done, he was done. And he left uh, 
not not Jungian work, but he left the training program um, with some opinions about the length of time people are required to stay in analysis. And, you know, he had some objections, some opinions. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and he, and he honestly, as he continued to do for the rest of his life, it followed what he thought was his star and his journey. And he listened always to his connection with his dreams. How, eventually met Sidra Stone, who was a, she was trained as a clinical psychologist. Would you say a little bit about her? Well, Sidra, you know, what is, what is the ingredient Sidra? She is the, the, the depth of feminine mm. to his depth of masculine. She's uh, sensitive and gifted. She's one of the smartest women I've ever met. And she's a very gifted clinician. She's solid and wise. And and she, at the time that they met, she didn't have the connection to the unconscious. She had experience, but not the connection that she eventually uh, was introduced to through her relationship with Hal. Sidra had had experience of unconscious material and dreams and visions but she didn't have uh, the connection and the language for it, which she ultimately got from Hal. And then together they began to explore the connection between them as the sort of motivating force of uh, understanding. And so it became for them a path to consciousness. Their relationship Mm -hmm. became a path to consciousness. And there are several, there are quite a few beautiful photos of the both of them at various stages in their lives in your book, uh, separately and together. So how did they meet and come together? This was not a quick thing. This was, this occurred over the course of several years. And it is, it is a wonderful story. And we'll get into later how you did these interviews uh, for the book, but would you say a little bit about their path to finding each other? Well, uh, Hal had been uh, well known doing energy work and um, guided imagery, which was a popular technique uh, at that in the seventies and eighties um, in California, and it was new. You know, that period of time in the United States, and particularly on the West Coast was really an explosive time in terms of exploring alternative healing methods and, and alternative work with people. And Hal became quite well known for doing uh, guided imagery sessions with lots and lots of people. I mean, big audiences, mm-hmm. you know, two, 300 people. And so uh, he was quite well known. And on a separate track, Sidra was doing some cave tripping, I think is what, I think that's mm-hmm. what it was. And so she was already interested in these kind of internal journeys that were becoming popular. And, you know, she's, she's wonderfully inquisitive, Sidra is. She's just on top of learning anything, anything and everything that, that catches her attention. And, and so she actually went to Hal on the recommendation of a friend of hers, 
to see, uh, to learn about uh, guided imagery and guided, guided meditation. Well, she was a psychologist and she was working clinically as a psychologist when she met Hal, right? Right. She was involved in that wonderful project, uh, Hamburger Home, uh, that we talk about, that she talks about in the book of mm -hmm. helping uh, adolescent girls who have sort of uh, are at their last stop of, of uh, you know, getting, getting their lives back together through the court system and uh, were referred there from the court system. And so she was very involved uh, with that already and, and in, a, in, in a small private practice. And she saw something in Hal's work that she wanted to incorporate in her own? Yes, yeah, she wanted to explore it because of the experiences she had had, um, cave tripping and uh, those kinds of internal journeys. And she wanted, you know, everybody was talking about what Hal was doing. He was very, he was quite well known. And so she was curious. She wanted to figure out what that was. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the first session that they had together, I mean, she had a, a journey that was just amazing. I mean, the depth and the images that came to her were just mind blowing. I mean, any <laughs> any any analyst would would hear them like a dream and and think, oh my God, this this woman can go beyond where most of us even imagine. They became colleagues, and then and they were each married at the time, and they eventually found their way to each other and kind of blended their families and then started working together. And they've published many books together and videos and MP3s that can all be found on their website. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. So let's talk about how and why you decided to tell their story. Yeah, I... I've often wondered the same thing. One, because it was a, a very big project. But I also uh, felt that I, you know, I have an investment, I guess, ultimately, in honoring the people that go before us. And, you know, the stones individually and together uh, cover a period of time in this country when there was no such thing as psychology. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was just sort of random work and not, there was, there just was nothing. Um, there was psychoanalysis uh, that came from Europe and there was nothing in this country uh, that was being developed. And, and so the process of that and all of the, you know, contortions and, and false starts and wrong directions that were part of coming coming into being in this country around mental health, um, I think are such interesting stories. Um, and and separately, I mean, Hal as a uh, becoming a Jungian analyst when it was so new in this country, and Sidra becoming a psychologist before women were allowed to do much of anything. Yeah, and so. The, you know, their, their processes individually and together are, to me, fascinating. And, and I, really, I really think they deserve for stories like theirs to be preserved because, it's, it, you know, we're in an age where things are immediate and fast and 
accessible. And these guys walked through the fire. Mm -hmm. And I I think those stories have to be preserved. And so uh, for me, both her story and Hal's story and theirs together is something worth worth saying. And it's really beautiful story of their relationship. And what I find interesting is that Sidra was born and grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and she was educated in New York City. And Hal was born in Detroit, and then he eventually wound up in Southern California. Sidra, through her first marriage, wound up in Southern California. So they were coming from different places, and and Sidra trained in clinical psychology. I think she got her PhD from the University of Maryland mm-hmm. in Baltimore. And then Hal uh, got his PhD from UCLA in Los Angeles there, and then trained at the Jung Institute in Los Angeles. And then they they, they were working at it. And they, they both have children from their first marriages. And so they were living this and experimenting and trial and error. And they eventually came up with this modality. And it is, along with voice dialogue, there's something called the psychology of selves, which I love. Would you say a little bit about that? And that's something that they developed, right? Right. It's, I mean, it, you know, the idea of, a, of multiplicity in the psyche is, is, of course, not new. I mean, and, and it wasn't new to Jung either. Uh, it was talked about in many ways. I have a section in the book where I sort of list the people who have uh, identified uh, multiple parts, multiple aspects, the human psyche. And uh, But the idea of a psychology of selves belongs to the stones. And, and what they've identified is that each is that we are, as human beings, made up psychologically of many different parts that handle different areas of our lives. And they identified these as selves because these, any one part sort of can function autonomously. It has its own worldview, its own ideas, its own expression, its own energy. And so they embodied these by identifying them as selves and, and then begin to teach us about relationship to uh, our individual selves as, as a task in order to help us uh, find our balance going through life. And how is this similar to Jung's work and his uh, concept of the shadow? Because that's what, what I see in this, in talking to maybe our in-voice dialogue, our disowned selves, the parts of us that are not in our conscious awareness, that we we push away, that we don't like, that we don't want to identify with. Right, right. And, and you know, this is the... This is the beauty of Jung's work and and the Stones' work is that it introduces us to stuff that that we don't know about ourselves. And so it, the the promise is that when we've been introduced, we'll stop uh, being uh, destabilized by people who carry it. So what what that means is that the is that there are selves that I like and identify uh, as who I am. And then on the other side, the understanding is both Jungian and in voice dialogue is that on the other side, there is an opposite and that we are actually 
psychologically made of opposites. And some we know about and some we don't. And so for the stones, uh, the disowned selves are those selves that we don't know anything about, but we recognize in other people. And for Jung, that, that is shadow. And so knowledge about that which we don't know is the point of analysis and work in voice dialogue and the psychology of selves. So what is done in a voice dialogue session? You are a facilitator. Would you tell us a little bit about how that occurs? What happens? A voice dialogue session is an, is a, uh, an actual uh, dialogue. It's an actual uh, conversation with another person and a variety of different selves. And the, the point of a facilitation is to separate selves from the central identity. From the central identity. Yeah. So I, so it, for instance, I would say, you know, Laura, I'd like to speak, if you don't mind, I'd like to speak to the part of you that enjoys doing these interviews. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would actually in, engage that part in conversation. What's your favorite part of it? What came, what made it come to you? How, how often, how much do you like to do? Do you think Laura's doing a good job? Mm. Um, that sort of thing. And then I would, we would come back to you and I might say, so I wonder on the other side, could I speak to the part of you that is kind of done with this? Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't enjoy the work, is tired today, whatever. And so I would allow uh, conversation and facilitate conversation with the other side who doesn't feel the same. Now, the advantage to that for you is to know, is to give you permission to find your balance so that you don't get over-identified with being um, an interviewer or you don't someday just throw in the towel because the part of you that doesn't enjoy the work is sick of it. And so that you always have choice from the middle. Because you know both sides. Exactly. And it, and it doesn't let you function as only a self. It's you have choice because you know both parts of you involved in this project. So because I am on Twitter and social media a lot, I do see a lot of comments that that I get or that people send me and just kind of what else is out there. And I can already hear people saying, well, to acknowledge that you have all these different selves inside of you, isn't that pathological? Isn't that multiple personality disorder? So what is the difference? Well, the difference is that you, you know uh, that these are parts. You don't believe that any one self is you. You know, the, the idea is that uh, we're all under one umbrella. All of these parts are under one umbrella. And, and you know that. The difference is that in, in uh, disorders like you're describing, dissociative disorders and identity disorders, um, th- there's no knowledge of the other parts. The parts think they are you. Now, when you were describing the voice dialogue session, were you saying that this is sort of the persona that's in the middle? No, I would say it's the, you know, it's the, it's the uh, 
operating ego. It okay. was you, you, who you know yourself to be. And then you also understand that there's a part of you that takes care of business. And then there's a part of you that loves to go on vacation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we're not just one person all the time, but there is a central operating ego. So where does the persona fit in? Or is that not a term that's really used in this area? No, it's a it's a Jungian term, but it's a uh, a persona can be any particular self that interfaces with the world. So any of those voices? Sure. Depends on, you know, we all have what's called a primary self. And a primary self is the one that, you know, m- most often interfaces with the world, takes care of problems, takes care of you, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that it takes care of your vulnerability. They, these primary selves are developed mm, to take care of our our ultimate vulnerability, and they, they protect us. And so they interface with the world uh, m- most often. And, and then on the other side, of course, there's, uh, there's an opposite. But, but a persona would be any one self that interfaces with the world for us. Mm-hmm. So how do people deal with when they realize that there is this opposite voice in them to what they're identifying with. So let's say to use your example, I'm identified and I'm not sure that's the right word with doing these interviews, the part of me that likes to do these interviews. And then if I were to have this session with you where we talk to the part of me who doesn't enjoy it, who wants to quit, what happens when a person is kind of thrown by that and says, oh, no, I have that in me, too. And what do I do with that? Right. And, and that's a great question, because it leads, leads to the next uh, uh, description, which is what, what is hoped for, mm-hmm. what the hoped for result is in a voice dialogue facilitation is that uh, a, a person is allowed to form an aware ego process between these two opposites and what that means is that which most people do flip from one self to another self to the opposite um as as jung uh, says you know the psyche will not tolerate radical imbalance and so you know the more identified you are on one side the more at risk you are for a, a complete reversal what jung called an, an anti-andromia and it throws you into the opposite side because you're out of balance. And so what voice dialogue does is in talking to the two uh, opposing parts is that it gives you in the center the opportunity to uh, stand the tension of the opposites, it, to hold both both sides, the part that identifies with being an interviewer and the part that can't stand it, and so that you have an awareness first of both sides. And the longer you do that, then a new, uh, a, a new state is formed in which you are able to have a little bit of both. It's like a, um, I describe it as an, an energetic dial. And in any given situation, you can turn the dial up on one side because the job requires it. Mm-hmm. And down on another, uh, and up on the other side when the job doesn't require it. 
And so you have agency in an aware ego process between any given pair of opposites. And Jung described this as the uh, transcendent function of the psyche. And he too, uh, you know, says you have to tolerate the tension of the opposites until a new psychological attitude is formed incorporating something of both. And that doesn't typically just happen in one session. That's something that can take quite a bit of time. Absolutely. And be a struggle. And it's important to stay with that struggle. Exactly. Because what most people do is in, in, in the, between a pair of opposites is just flip, you know, sort of randomly and dramatically from one side to the other, you know, always being on one side or the other and not tolerating uh, the consciousness of both sides. And it's, it's very hard work. It's, it absolutely is. Uh, but the reward, you know, is great. How does your work with voice dialogue tie into your work as a Jungian analyst? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that I do voice dialogue um, regularly as part of analysis. Okay. Although, um, I mean, the two are pretty seamless in a way. It's the same foundation. And so it, it, there are times when in a session I might spontaneously um, do a facilitation and say, you know, just for the idea of let's, I mean, let me talk to that part. Let's give that part a voice. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, 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 it's quite Jungian. It's uh, to think of it too as active imagination. The difference yes. uh, voice dialogue is that it's actual conversation. In active imagination, it's usually written um, and not in and not necessarily shared uh, it with the analyst. But it, but it's a similar process. And so, you know, it, I'm, I might spontaneously use it. I also find it useful in as an alternative um, understanding of dream work or and or when I work with couples. And I find uh, I find that voice dialogue work um, very uh, helpful working uh, in couples. So do other voice dialogue facilitators work that way as well? Or do they is it something where you can find a voice dialogue practitioner and work with them just using voice dialogue? Yes. Um, I, I mean, in fact, most, uh, most people who do voice dialogue are not, I mean, I, I, I don't know any other analysts uh, that do it. I mean, that I am essentially an, a Jungian analyst and I also do, uh, I do work in voice dialogue. But there are a whole group of folks who are uh, voice dialogue practitioners all over the country and all over the world. Uh, their work has been internationally known for many, many years. And they have um, on, their, on their website, Voice Dialogue International, there's a directory of uh, facilitators. And, and it's, you know, it, I mean, Hal's Hope, Hal and Citrus Hope was, was and, and continues to be is that the work become useful, um, it, that the work become a tool for many disciplines, and it's, it's used in many disciplines, in business and, and in all kinds of therapies, and uh, uh, it's just, that was, that was the point. It isn't uh, that people necessarily become, you know, 
voice dialogue facilitators, which mm-hmm. is why they it didn't certify anybody. It's not that kind of a program. They offer it as a tool, and it's enormously useful. And so I'm I'm just one kind of uh, professional who uses voice dialogue, and I only use it because it dovetails uh, so well with Jungian analysis, because that is, in fact, what I do. Mm-hmm. In the book, um, the beginning of the book, you say that you wondered what kind of people make contributions to consciousness. And that seems to be the theme of the book where you're asking that question and you're exploring it through a series of interviews with Hal and Sidra. You visited them up in Northern California, which your book is so beautifully written. The way you describe the scenery and the the ambiance of the room or the outdoors or your drives, it's like I'm there. And there's this really beautiful picture that you took. It's a photograph that is the cover of the book. And you can see that'll be on this episode page at speakingofyoung.com. So you made a series of trips, of visits to their house, and you would fly into San Francisco airport, and then it was about a three and a half hour drive north. Is that right? Yes. That is a long journey and, yeah. and not, not an easy one either. So tell us about that process that you went through to do these interviews to write this book. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it was such a privilege, really. I, you know, I love that I started with that question. Um, you know, it, it was my motivation. It was like, who, you know, who does this sort of thing? Yeah. What kind of people are called and, and what are they made of? I mean, you know, the, the stones were always very open about their lives and their relationship. And, but, you know, to get behind the scenes and to really, you know, say what what formed you? You know, what what made you who you are, and how'd you get here? That was fascinating to me, and and so you know they were so gracious because I honestly I hadn't done anything like this before, and so you know on the other side, of course, I now think, gosh, if I had known that, it would have taken a year less or maybe two, but. You know, they were so wonderful in giving me time. And I, I really just came out and said, you know, please t- just tell me your story. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, it, it was delightful. They are delightful. And to me, it, it, I began to see, you know, what kind of people do contribute to consciousness. And, you know, it's, it's not a picnic. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of life that has to happen and a lot of trial and a lot of agony and ecstasy. And, you know, and, and what was so wonderful about them is that they, they tell the truth, mm. you know, they don't dress it up. They don't say, well, you know, the clouds parted and the sun came out and everything just, you know, the leaves fell in a neat little pile. I mean, it, it just, it wasn't like that. And they don't, they don't, they didn't hold back about you know the pain it caused people the yeah. the lives they touched and and the stuff they went through i mean it's just a real story and and it's a love story i mean who doesn't who doesn't like that yeah yeah 
So you had been to their house in Albion before for um, for training. I'm sorry. What did you what 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 were those called? <laughs> They're called. Uh, they 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 ran regular intensives. Intensive. Called, okay. And I actually uh, had more training individually with them. I I did go to, uh, to an intensive and. And they're they're really interesting group experiences and 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 the opportunity to be facilitated by a variety of people uh, as well as the stones and but I'm I'm quite introverted by nature and and so I ended up doing almost all of my work uh, with them individually and all of my training uh, with them and the way they work is interesting uh, that you go uh, for a week. And you would be facilitated uh, maybe three days by Hal and two days by Sidra or the opposite. And, and then you stay uh, in one of the apartments on the uh, property or at a hotel. I mean, over the years, there were all kinds of things. But, and you work intensively with them for, you know, two and a half hours in a session. And then you're on your own for the afternoon and you come back the next morning. And I did I did that twice a year uh, for many years, and and was in touch with them, of course, in between. And this was all before the book was even an idea. Mm-hmm. And then you decided to tell their stories, so you went back for actual interviews with them, and where you sat down, just the two of you, uh, you interviewed them separately. I did. And they told their stories, and they're all in this book, this beautiful book. It's so beautifully written, Diane. Um, and so I, I, I do want to mention to the listeners, Diane and I actually know each other. You were my analyst um, for many, many years, and I remembered you going to California, but I didn't know what you were doing. And uh, you'd say you were going for a week at a time, and I thought, wait a minute, where are you going? So now I know more about what those trips were about. And I didn't know until I read your book. And there are also you also share some stories about yourself in this book, which I loved reading because I didn't know. Another thing that is kind of a recurring theme in the book is what you call spirit of place. Yeah, it's such a, uh, yeah. how do you talk about spirit? How do you talk about anything that's invisible? It's mm. a, such a challenge. Um, I, what I think is that there are certain, certain of us and, and many of us that don't know how to identify it who are quite sensitive to the energy that a certain place carries. Yes. It, it's the way you feel when your feet touch the ground. It's, it's the way your soul breathes in a, in a certain way at a certain depth just because of the place you're standing in or the place you're sleeping in. Or, you know, I, I actually wrote, um, I wrote a chapter in a book that, of Mark Winborn's called Shared Realities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I write specifically about uh, the energy of place uh, and, a, and a, an experience I had in Kauai. Um, but I, I have always felt, um, going to, uh, the Stones house in, in Albion, uh, that, that there is an energy of the place that is communicated and it, it, it 
it opens the soul. I mean, it just, there's a peace and a depth and a, and a, um, an energy that comes from them, the land. And, you know, it's right on the coast. You can see the ocean. You hear the foghorn. I mean, and these giant trees. It's just, um, it's evocative of human depth and being, and being held by something. You know, it's a, a connection. Yeah, you talk about how deeply geographical roots attach in the psyche and also the importance and the unavoidable impact of birthplace, the place mm-hmm. we were born. Would you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not as articulate uh, as some uh, about that, but there is a, there is a groundedness um, that happens uh, when one returns to the place of one's birth, mm. even even if the story attached to that place is not a happy one, or a, but there is an instantaneous recognition yeah. uh, deep in the soul of this is this is where I started, and I I, I mean for me I feel um, even though I'm often resistant to being uh, from the Midwest. Uh, that that it where I was born it gives me a certain uh, groundedness that um, uh, the east and west coast uh, carry in such an extreme way and I feel rooted uh, in the middle mm-hmm. and I, I I do attribute that to being midwestern even though I'm sometimes critical of that as being somewhat unenlightened but uh, no offense to people who love the Midwest. And and I've been here, God knows, forever. Yeah, I was born in New York City. And I noticed when I returned there, of course, the area I'm from looks so different now. But whenever I go back, I can feel I could physically feel something in my body. So this section on bonding patterns in chapter 12 is some of the best material I have ever read. And so it it, it truly is. And I was wondering, it's not a term that I hear frequently. So would you tell us briefly, what is a bonding pattern? Yeah, I, you know, I I think there are a number of things about the Stone's work that are really brilliant. But I think the the bonding pattern is probably uh, one of the most outstanding ideas of understanding uh, a human relationship and the the idea of the bonding pattern is that in relationship there is for human beings there is sort of one model which is parent child we don't that's all we have and and so um they talk about bonding patterns as as the the meat of understanding unconscious processes uh, between people meaning that in 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 relationship somebody is always on some level the child or the parent mm. and that the interactions um that become problematic or dramatic or or uh, even um uh, uh, successful often have to go through that phase of understanding that we we often connect as as a parent child relationship and the, the the beauty of that is that when you know when we find ourselves in relationship 
having the same difficulty over and over again, the yeah. same fight with the same words, you know, with the same, <laughs> same <laughs> drama, and, and absolutely n nothing gets resolved. Those are bonding patterns. And, and it's guaranteed that uh, psychologically and internally, somebody is the child and somebody is the parent until it gets painful enough that they switch roles. And then the person, and then you start all over again. And, and the reason it doesn't get resolved is because bonding patterns are unconscious. And so the, the work of voice dialogue, and the, this is what is so outstanding for couples work, um, is that it makes those bonding patterns conscious. And suddenly you're not in it anymore. It only takes one, only one person has to become conscious that they're in a bonding pattern and you're out of it. Mm. But, uh, and, and they're, you know, they're amazing teachers, these bonding patterns. Hal and Sidra talk about them as, as you know, the, the best educational tool that the universe has ever come up with to help human beings is to, is, is you learn so much about yourself and how you operate in relationship if you understand bonding patterns. And so there, you know, and there are, there are positive bonding patterns, which is, you know, everybody makes nice and nobody deals with negativity and nobody rocks the boat. And pretty soon the relationship sort of begins to get dull and, and, you know, boring and eventually sort of dies because there's no excitement, there's no conflict. And then there are negative bonding patterns, which are often terribly painful and destructive and you know, but really wake us up to the idea that we, we need to find a way to deal with negativity in relationship that doesn't destroy relationship. And if you're aware of bonding patterns, that is the salvation of many, many relationships that um, uh, go uh, south. Yes, and I can attest to that. You use the word conflict. Would you say a little bit about the necessity or the importance or the value, just in general, of conflict? Um, sure. I, you know, I often feel like I'm, you know, selling a product that's hard to sell because I, I feel like I'm, yeah. you know, promoting uh, people fighting. But, right. uh, but in reality, it, it, it's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. That there's conflict in relationship. You're, you know, there's always two people in a space big enough for one, and 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 you know, people fall apart when when there's no reliable and efficient way to deal with conflict because you can't avoid it. And so, I what I what I do as an analyst or or in voice dialogue facilitation is I help people find a way to deal with negativity because. You can't avoid it. And so I do think people should fight, but they should fight in a way that doesn't destroy things. There have to be rules. There have to be, you know, the idea of not hitting below the belt because you know someone well or, you know, it, it, and so often in relationship, it isn't really what you say. It's who in you is saying it. Mm. And you can, you can say some very difficult things if it comes from a place in you that is kind. And so you, you can't let, you know, a 300-pound primary self that is defending, you know, that is a protector and 
sees everybody as an enemy. You can't let them deliver the message to your husband that, you know, you wish he'd lose a few pounds because, you know, he'll destroy him. You have to, you know, these are legitimate conversations to have between spouses, but you have to do it from a place that understands how hurtful it can be mm. to talk about negative things. You explain those things so well, and I would love to do an episode with you where I just ask you to explain things because you do it unlike any other. So Hal Stone passed away recently, and because of this pandemic, his memorial service was held virtually, and it was attended by hundreds of people, and you spoke your book, uh, was published two years ago, so Hal got to see the book finished. You know, I, I mean, it. My biggest fear in writing the book because it took, um, it took uh, so many years to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest fear was that he would die before before mm-hmm. I got the book finished. You know, no, no pressure, just right. Um, I would I would just say to him, "Okay, don't die. I'm not done yet." Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he was. I mean, and he would laugh. You know, oh, okay. Oh, I'm still, I'm still here. <laughs> um. Uh, and I and you know they never pressured me. Hal never did, and and we we all just said, you know, gently, how's the book coming? <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad that. He uh, got to see it, and and you know that it, it's it's also such a tribute to Sidra um, that uh, the work they've done is so meaningful and deep, and and many people didn't know her story as well. So so w- when Hal died, and and his daughter called me and asked me if I would speak, um, I was. Uh, of course, enormously honored. And, you know, just the idea of, I mean, there were like almost 500 people from all over the world on this Zoom uh, memorial service. And, you know, I, it was an honor to speak and it was difficult and emotional. And because so, and you could feel so many people loved him. Mm-hmm. And so many people have been impacted by their work and their lives and their loving hearts. And so I, you know, I was honored. I was afraid I wouldn't get through it without uh, crying. And and I almost made it. Um, but it was an honor, Laura. I yeah. I I don't I don't know what else to say about it except that it was it was a last chance to say uh, goodbye. Mm-hmm. One of the quotes in the book, um, well, something that Hal said to you, he said, unless something speaks to my heart, my soul in some way, I just don't have interest in it. And I love that. And I'm going to use that. Because, uh, yeah, I don't want to spend time on things that, that I'm not feeling. And don't touch me in that way. So I feel like he gave me permission to say no to some things. Because unless something speaks to my heart or my soul, you know, I just don't have interest in it. 
he was such a great model of that. You know, he, I mean, if he taught nothing else, he, he, he taught, do not waste time on things that do not belong to you, mm. you know, and, and he just, he kept going and exploring and opening. And, you know, one of the things I love the most about what Hal and Sidra both do is their honesty about the aging process and looking into the future and what's beyond us and not wasting time on, on things that either involve people that are not your tribe or um, attaching to things that don't belong to you. And it's a hugely important lesson. If there's one thing I think that is also so such a big connection with Hal and Sidra's work and Hal personally is his um, his dedication to following his dreams and his dream life and how voice dialogue um, can be an added tool to understanding dreams, how different selves are represented in dreams and and how the unconscious, um, how how well Hal would say, not how the unconscious guides us, but how the universe guides us through dreams and our understanding of dreams. And you know, he he, he actively dreamt right up to the last minute of his life, and um, you know, a day or two before uh, before he died, he was talking about a dream to Sidra, as I mentioned in his. Uh, memorial and you know his his dedication and his his primacy of staying connected with the unconscious and staying uh, connected to the universe through our dreams was so important and it's a it's a, a legacy certainly that lines up with Jung and Freud and you know there's 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 so many ways uh, there's one unconscious and so many ways to address it and and I, I feel that Jung and Halstone and Sidra Stone um, bear allegiance to something so vital um, that I would certainly want that to be shared. Thank you, Diane. You're welcome. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying Alexa, Play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. With eternal thanks to my guest, Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>